Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. I'm Brian Wilson from Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black from Annapolis, Maryland. And I'm Lisa Van Boxel from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Today we are going to be reading Joseph Conrad's Typhoon, a rip-roaring, sea-going tale. Kind of. Jeff's going to do a quick introduction and start us off with an opening question. Yeah, thanks, Brian. So you're right. This is a rip-roaring sea tale. It's a story of a ship named the Nan Shan. It's a steamship that is uh, traveling uh, along the coast of China, a little bit out to sea, um, transporting a group of Chinese laborers from one place to another. And her captain is named Captain McWhir. Uh, She has a a first mate named Jukes and a number of other uh, seamen and and people, of course, who work, engineers who work also down in the boiler room. And this complement of characters um, during their journey is confronted by a terrible typhoon, hence the name of the story. So uh, the typhoon threatens the ship. And during this threat, where it seems like there's a widespread uh, fear or even belief that the ship is going to go down, uh, the captain, Captain McQuirr, learns that the Chinese laborers who are below decks are fighting. Um, when they came on board the ship, they brought with them their life savings, each of them, in a, a kind of chest full of uh, silver dollars. And during the storm, these chests have broken loose and broken open. And so a combination of the terrible rolling of the ship and their attempts to secure their own treasure and maybe pursue the treasure of others has led to this terrible commotion below decks. And the captain orders uh, the mate to go and sort this out um, during the storm. So during this time when the survival of of the ship is in question, uh, the captain, Captain McQuirr, orders uh, his officer to go and try to secure his passengers and stop their uh, fight, their commotion. And by the end of the story, uh, the ship has survived and it's reached the center of the storm. Uh, but there's a fear, uh, according to Captain McQuirr, that uh, it's got to exit out the other side of the typhoon. They're going to face even worse. And uh, I find the ending a little ambiguous. I don't know quite uh, whether the ship survives or not. But we're left with that moment of calm after the beginning of the storm and with the knowledge that uh, however temporarily the, uh, the passengers of the ship have been secured. So uh, the question I wanted to ask about this is uh, based on something that I came across when I was reading the introduction, uh, which is written by Conrad. Uh, it's an introduction to a collection of stories that he wrote, including this one. And he says, uh, Typhoon would have just been a sea story uh, and a storm story were it not for the character of Captain McQuirr. And as soon as I had that character fixed in my mind, I knew I had the story. And so that seemed interesting to me, that this wasn't just about the typhoon, even though that's the name of the story. Uh, It's also something about the captain that Conrad's interested in. So my question is this. um, What's the relationship between the captain and the storm? That is, uh, why do we want this character in this situation uh, to make this particular story? That's a good, a good question, Jeff. They begin by uh, presenting the captain um, as this person who's very literal. He only likes facts. Facts are clear. And he's presented as though he has no imagination. 
by the narrator, but it's not clear that the narrator is uh, tr simply trustworthy. Um, and there's some indications that, that he's not. Um, and he's, in particular, the captain is contrasted with, with Jukes, who um, some people speculate might actually be a version of Conrad. <laughs> um, and that person is very focused on particulars, and he's a young man, um, doesn't seem given to sort of general rules. Um, but of the captain in the very opening, we get an interesting description that is, he sort of looks fairly bland, but we're told that he has um, these very direct blue eyes, that his hair is very fair and fine. But then we're also told that no matter what he does when he shaves, no matter how short the hair is, um, uh, it has a fiery metallic gleam when uh, he moves his head. Mm -hmm. Um, and he always has a watch and a top quality umbrella, which he's not very good at furling. <laughs> um, <laughs> but those details are important, I think, for understanding who he is, particularly the fiery beard. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're told, you know, he seems like such a boring guy, but what could have possessed this person as a young man just leave home and become a seaman? Mm -hmm. And then we're also told he writes uh, these very factual letters to his wife, who's sort of pretentious and um, doesn't really read them. She's not really interested. Uh, but the steward always reads them. And, right. and McWhirr, we're told, he's sort of careless, so he leaves them available. Um, and the steward reads them because they're so they're so detailed and factual, and they give McWhirr's th thoughts about what's going on on the ship. But I'm inclined to think McWhirr leaves them purposefully available. Right. Yeah, he's so attentive to detail. There's that story about him noticing the lock that doesn't quite close correctly on the, his ship as it's being built, right? That, that it's a necessary inference, I think, that he knows that the steward is seeing these letters. Right. And the major conflict that comes up is, is when they're coming into the storm, um, the captain, who looks like he ha may not have faced a storm this big, although it's not clear, he decides that because they're on a steamer, the thing to do is to head right into it. And Jukes wants him to change course and go around it. We might want to look at that interchange, but McWhirr says, basically, well, um, I've been reading the book, which sort of seems to be standard for the Bible. I've been reading the book, and the book says steamers go right into it. And he says to, Mc to Jukes, you know, if I didn't know better, I would think you were drunk. What do, you, are, do you want us to sort of change course every time we hit a storm and go out of our way to avoid it? Um, <clears throat> And again, it, we, one might think that's, that the captain is responding that way because he's sort of a, an idiot and unimaginative. But my guess is that it's actually, again, because he's wiser than this young Jukes character. Yeah, I wouldn't mind looking at that passage because it's true that there are some details in there that are, uh, would repay some attention. So uh, does one of you have it hand? Uh, I'm trying to pull it up right now. My remembering it, um, is actually that the book says to go around, um, and that it it does. Yeah, yes. McWhir decides to ignore the book, and just says, "No, we're going to go straight at it because otherwise it would go three hundred miles off course." And just the fact that he has to consult the book kind of implies that he's never been in a typhoon before. Um, you know, maybe not even heavy weather, like like a typhoon or similar to a typhoon and he's just doing this strange kind of calculation on you know return on investment of you know there's less chance 
that the cost of the damages to the ship and the crew are going to be greater than the cost of coal and going around, which, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I got caught, I got, I got busted by lease in the last of the secret share about, uh, misinterpreting the captain's intentions. So I'll let it play out before <laughs> I give any firm conclusion <laughs> on that. But by the same token, I was just like, you're going to go through it. Uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Actually, you're right, Brian. I, did, I do have it here, right? So um, uh, this is Captain McWhirr speaking to Jukes. And he says, now here's the book. He continued with deliberation, slapping his thigh with the closed volume. I've been reading the chapter on storms there. This was true. He had been reading the chapter on storms. When he'd entered the chart room, it was with no intention of taking the book down. Some influence in the air, the same influence, probably, that caused the steward to bring without orders the captain's sea boots and oilskin coat up to the chart room, had, as it were, guided his hand to the shelf. And without taking the time to sit down, he'd waded with a conscious effort into the terminology of the subject. He lost himself amongst advancing semicircles, left and right hand quadrants, the curves of the tracks, the probable bearing of the center, the shifts of the wind, and the readings of the barometer. He tried to bring all of these things into definite relation to himself, and he ended by becoming contemptuously angry with such a lot of words and with so much advice, all headwork and supposition, without the glimmer of certitude. It's the damnedest thing, Jukes, he said. If a fellow was to believe all that's in there, he'd be running most of his time all around the sea trying to get behind the weather. Again, he slapped his leg with the book, and Jukes opened his mouth but said nothing. Running to get behind the weather. Do you understand that, Mr. Jukes? It's the maddest thing. <laughs> so you're right, Brian. He, uh, he decides that he's going to go into it, and Jukes yeah. is flabbergasted. Yeah, and if I could point out just two more um, short sentences in that context. A little bit later, he says to Jukes, I couldn't bring myself to do that if every word in there was gospel truth, right? So at least there's your comparison with the Bible. And uh, the earlier question, um, maybe a page or two before he starts telling Jukes about the book, he asks Jukes, what put it into your head that I would start to tack a steamer as if she were a sailing ship? Right, so you know this is uh, maybe a bit of a generalization, but I'll throw it out there. It, is it right that he prefers to reason from the nature of the ship he's in, if I can put it that way, than from the testimony that's in a book that is so uncertain or so distant from his experience that he doesn't know how to weigh it? That seems right. Um, when they're heading into the the seas that. Um where the storm takes place, we're told that he reads the sea and the shores. And for him, although the facts look very muddled to other people, for the captain, they're very clear. And, I, and again, just factual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a connected story after they weather the storm. He reports, I think to Jukes, that he has this experience where he had sat down with a number of sea captains and there was one who was bragging about his having avoided a storm by uh, trying to to pass around it. And uh, the interesting thing for Captain McQuirr in that story is that the the person, the the captain, never experienced the storm that he succeeded in avoiding. And he just doesn't understand how you can claim to have avoided something if you weren't sure that it was actually there. 
Right. Yeah, that's a funny moment. Yeah, he says to Jukes, so what do you want me to do when I finally land? And I tell the people that hired us, um, yeah, I'm sorry I took so, so much more time and spent so much more money, but I, I had to avoid a storm. And they say, what storm? And you say, well, I don't know, because I avoided it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's strange, the imagery there of the, you know, kind of saying, do you want me to tack like a sailboat? Like, mm-hmm you turn the wheel in a steamer. It's not hard, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's there's something in kind of like the harmony of nature with a sailboat perhaps or, um, you know, kind of like Lise was saying, the Bible did dominion over nature, right? That the steamer and McWhir somehow represent a dominion over nature. He doesn't have to accommodate it. He doesn't have to work in harmony with it like a sailboat has to. He He wants to plow right through and if not ignore it, then then overcome it. Okay, so I think I see this theme developing. So um, with the correction that, yes, the, I mean, the, the book of rules is like the Bible, but that McWhir actually ignores it in favor of his interpretation of the empirical world. Um, Brian's last comment um, suggests that McWhir and the steamboat, and they might be sort of metaphors for each other, are sort of godlike. And I think... Uh, that is borne out by what goes on when the f- storm finally hits, that McWhir seems very steady. So Jukes is being thrown around, thrown around, and he yells at one point, my God, my God, four times. And what he actually finds is McWhir. McWhir grabs him, right, and he, and he says, I found my captain. So there, it does look like there's a replacement by a certain notion of God. Um, McWhir replace, replaces a certain notion of God on that ship. Mm-hmm. And that I think makes sense in the different settings that we see in the ship, right? You're either on deck or in the pilot's captain. You're in this godlike position, um, you know, this almost heavenly position where you're commanding, you know, everything you see, more or less. You have uh, the engine room, which is kind of keeping everything going, really. And is incredibly hot. I think at one point it says it reads like 117 degrees below decks and one man pops out before the typhoon's covered in sweat and coal. And then you have the Chinamen who are fighting, right? Fighting over money, fighting over possessions. And so there's some kind of, at least to me, visual visual representation of like heaven, hell, and earth between those three. Um. Yeah, so I don't know if I'm drawing out those parallels too too much. No, no, I, I like it. And so let me take your example, your leadership, as an instance for me to stick out my neck. Here, Here's my, my <laughs> overall thrust at an interpretation. Uh, the ship is the world, and every world has a god, every ship has a captain. It's a kind of world. Uh, maybe a steamship world is different from a sailing ship world, and I'd be interested in hearing about that. But in this world, there are sailors, there are engineers, and there are passengers. Uh, the storm is whatever is outside the world. It looks like it uh, renders human contact of all different kinds impossible, and uh, too much of that is lethal. Um, and inside the world reflects the impact of the storm or what's outside the world, but as um, uh, buffered by uh, the seamen, the captain, and the engineers. Um, so it's interesting to me. It's not clear to me that the Chinese laborers, they're um, fighting and they're being affected by the communicated motion from the storm are blurred together 
to my mind. And so it looks like you might even think that they're fighting because they're in a storm, right? Um, and if the, the world were working well, it would insulate uh, these laborers from whatever's outside the world and therefore stop their fighting, which, which turns out to be what they're able to do. So what do you all think of that kind of general scheme as a way to, to pursue this? I think it's got to it's got to be correct um, that the ship is is like a world and and Wurz, McWhir is like a god. I wonder a little bit about the relation to the the storm. Maybe we could pursue this possibility or, or add it on to your interpretation, Jeff. And that is, it looks to me like the storm is some sort of test of McWhir as a god in this world and his ability to uh, guide the ship. And then with respect to the passengers, the Chinese passengers ultimately rule justly, according Mm -hmm. to them. And I say that because um, of a lot of the descriptions of the storm, which some of which are very beautiful. Um, Let me just read one to remind remind ourselves of what that's like. Um, He says, uh, I'll I'll read a, a little chunk. It unveiled for a sinister fluttering moment a ragged mass of clouds hanging low, the lurch of the long outlines of the ship, the black figures of men caught on the bridge, heads forward as if petrified in the act of budding. The darkness palpitated down upon all this, and then the real thing came at last. It was something formidable and swift, like the sudden smashing of a vial of wrath. It seemed to explode all around the ship with an overpowering concussion and a rush of great waters, as if an immense dam had been blown up to windward. In an instant, the men lost touch of each other. This is the disintegrating power of a great wind. It isolates one from one's kind. An earthquake, a landslip, an avalanche overtake a man incidentally, as it were, without passion. A furious gale attacks him like a personal enemy tries to grasp his limbs, fastens upon his mind, seeks to rout his very spirit out of him. So it looks like there, it, it has sort of almost divine qualities, right? It's, it's, it's testing him. Mm-hmm. So is this like, you know, a, a, a Greek tragedy of sorts or um, like the Iliad where the gods are fighting? You know, in this case, it's just McWhir versus Poseidon. Um there is, we got to figure out how the engineers are like Hephaestus, but, um, <laughs> you know, and the, and the Chinese laborers are being, you know, killed, maimed, robbed, uh, because Poseidon and McWhir are fighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, uh, I think is, is one way that I'd be inclined to read it, but I, I do have this, um, slight hesitation that makes me want us to push on this point a little bit. Um, the humanity, maybe humanity is the wrong word, but the personification of the storm seems to me to be in, in some tension with uh, another sense that I get that it's, um, that it's inhuman or that it's not personified or that it's not really personal. Um, there are passages, I'll just pick one at random because I have it up right now, uh, where uh, Conrad refers to the starless night of the immensities beyond the created universe. Uh, he refers to things like appalling stillness. So it looks like there's something profoundly alien about this storm, and maybe that's compatible with the sense that it's uh, like a rival god, like a rival to McWhir, uh that's testing him. But I was really struck by how... Um, 
unlike everything else the storm was. Maybe that's what makes it a significant test, right? Is it's, it's, it's on the edges of possible experience and not just one, of, one experience among many, something like that. Well, I mean, I do often find overly simplistic patterns. So if, if the listeners haven't figured out by, by, by now, Jeff, at least know um, that I definitely do that. So I don't want to push that point too far, but you know, I'm also, I'm trying to figure out how to piece the kind of concept of the readers, you know, the stored as well as McWhir's wife, Rouse's wife, you know, you have these uh, introduced in the beginning and, and in the end, you have the, the families that are reading these letters home. So I'm wondering how that kind of plays into our theme, if we've identified it, you know, correctly. How do the readers play into that? For me, um, with respect to where we are right now, maybe the most relevant point is that Mrs. McWhir has no interest uh, in her husband's letters um, and no real sense of the danger that he encounters, in, in part because of the way he writes, that he's so factual. She doesn't know how to read that. It looks like she would be more interested in, in um, a little more lurid or imaginative prose, whereas the steward respects actually the way McWhir writes. And then we're given this detail at the end that the letter, he, he, he actually writes a letter to his wife when they're in the midst of the storm and he thinks that they're going to die. And he, um, it's on Christmas, I think, and he indicates that on the back of the letter. And she never bothers to turn over the letter, so she never reads it. Um, but that's, I think, Conrad's way of saying, despite the fact that McWhir looks so self-possessed throughout the storm and someone might think he doesn't really have a sense of the danger in fact he did right he he, he does throughout the storm mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so now that makes me think of jeff's opening question um maybe we could put it this way the descriptions of the storm are very imaginative i mean some of them are exquisite in the prose and that's precisely what we don't see from the Gwer. But maybe this is a possibility, that the man who seems very self-possessed and composed has a whole inner world that we don't see, that might be a lot more like the storm. Whereas, the, so it might be as though we get a, the storm is McWhir inside out, so to speak. Mm -hmm. That might be a possibility. So it's like, it's almost like encountering um, the human soul in the storm, but in its passions, it, it oddly or paradoxically becomes sort of inhuman because passions that are just running wild don't have that self-possessed rational capacity. So that it, it could be a metaphor in addition to the interpretation that Jeff was suggesting, which I think also is present. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. That helps a little bit with um, uh, bringing the two different ways of reading the storm together, right, as something that's personal or that's directed to McWhir in particular and something that's impersonal. It's just the uh, limit of our possible experience or whatever the outside boundary of the human is. Um, and maybe one thing I'd, I'd cite in support of that interpretation is um, it looks like McQuir is also, there's something alien about him, right? The way he's not able to take other people up on their conversational gambits makes them uncomfortable. And maybe that uh, sense that he's not <clears throat> uh, fully integrated into society, right, is, is akin to the, the sense in which the storm seems to separate people, make them doubt their existence, make it hard for them to talk to one another, 
right? So yeah, maybe there's a kind of coldness uh, to McWhir as well that's reminiscent of what the storm does to human relations. Or at least I want to, would you, would you accept this? There's a kind of, he appears cold, but if the storm might in some way be, well, let me start with a smaller fact. He appears cold, but we know that's not simply true because of the the detail about the letter. Right, and, and his it's whiskers. Certainly, yeah. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, he has these metallic, fiery whiskers growing out of his face, which suggests something like an inner fieriness that he that manifests in spite of his efforts to shave it off. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering also, like, he seems a by-the-book captain, right? The first kind of instance we see of this is the flag of Siam. And his British crew is upset that they're flying under, you know, the the flag of Siam that the company does for who knows insurance reasons or something like that. And Jukes, I think it's Jukes, or is it the second mate that says, you know, the, the flag is wrong. You know, he's just upset right. about it. <laughs> and, and the captain, I I think having to know exactly what the guy is talking about, goes and gets the flag book and says. No, it's twice the length as the width and the elephant's in the center and we just need to make sure the elephant is right side up and it's fine. <laughs> and so we see this, you know, kind of by the book mentality of McWhir, except when it comes to the storm. You know, the book, his own personal kind of experience of talking to other captains says, go around. And, mm-hmm. and logic kind of says the same thing. And McWhir ignores the book and goes straight towards it. So I'm wondering what we make of that seeming divergence. It reminds me of um, another Conrad story, which we actually, which we actually also did, where it looks like Conrad tells us indirectly that part of being a captain means you have to know, you have to be able to judge when to go by the book and when it's not important. In other words, just to be literal, which of course is what McWhir is accused of being, is a fault. And this very apparently literal man shows us that, in fact, that's an unjust criticism of him. And I agree with you, Brian. I think he knows exactly what Jukes is complaining about when he says <laughs> he gets a little he gets a little firm with Jukes, right, and, and uh, kind of puts him in his place, but very subtly. Like we just need to know that the elephant's the right side up. <laughs> yeah. And I'm wondering what we make of the the second mate. Uh, the one that's, you know, so kind of alien to the crew, doesn't talk to anybody, goes into his cabin, says nothing. When he's, when he's woken for his watch, he's laying there, eyes open, staring at the ceiling. Um, how does that character fit into the whole? He reminded me a little bit of the seaman that the um, first mate from the secret sharer was accused of killing, right? That this looks like a highly disruptive character or a highly disruptive type on a ship and so that McWhir um, eventually has to lay hands on him uh, and it looks like he's broken by the storm uh, the second mate is uh, you know uh, suggested those things to me but I, I don't have much to say beyond that did either of you uh, see anything more than that in him well I'm, I'm I feel like I'm kind of teasing out between the second mate and the readers that there are some characters here that maybe we are meant to relate to, you know? Uh, I think with the second mate, like as a reader who hasn't been on ship, um, and I have, and I have a fun uh, 50 knot win story if we want to get to that later. Um, wow. But, uh, <laughs> you know, 
it's how potentially a reader would interact with this, right? A second mate, the second mate would represent, oh, well, we could, we could handle this. We don't know really what we do aside from the action parts of the sequence because we can't picture shipboard's life outside of that. Um, and then as readers, we might, you know, either be McWhir's, um wife who just kind of leafs through it and skims it, or we might be Rout's wife that is not only reading it, but also reading it to others, even if the others aren't really paying attention. So I'm wondering if there's not some kind of entryway for us as the reader between the second mate and the other readers. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that, but I have to admit, like Jeff, um, I didn't really focus on the second mate. But am I right to remember that, as Jeff was suggesting, when the storm hits, the second mate is up uh, with the captain, um, steering and he loses his mind basically he just falls apart he's that character and he ends up in a corner and at that point or somewhere around that point the captain sends jukes down below to deal with the passengers and jukes doesn't really understand exactly what this is about but i think we're supposed to see by means of the second mate in that context that it's very scary and dangerous above board and I think the captain sends Jukes below, not primarily because he needs him to look after the Chinese passengers, but because he's trying to save Jukes' life. Um, and, and Jukes is a young man, it's dangerous. And so, the, so you just see the captain very calmly finding a reason to stay above board and sending everybody else below. And if we didn't have the second mate losing his mind there, we might miss um, the detail about just how dangerous it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's definitely something with the captain trying to save Jukes and in some way save the ship. I forget if it's um, the first time Jukes goes below or the second time where the captain is briefing him on what to do and saying, you know, if basically implying if I'm washed overboard, here's what you need to do. I don't know if that's before he sends him down for the Chinese laborers or if it's uh, after he returns. But it's interesting that he has that moment where he takes that moment to say, you know, if if I'm washed overboard, here's mm-hmm. what you need to do. And it specifically point out that Jukes is a young man. And so I'm wondering, you know, does that is that there to contrast, you know, that like a human kindness between him and the second mate, between Jukes and the second mate, what the captain can show to someone? Or does it reinforce you know, the captain just making the determination that he needs to do to save the ship. And I think that kind of ties into the Chinaman fighting, right? There's something in that that is that could be interpreted partially as human kindness, like, hey, we have we have to provide for their safety. It's it's a it's, you know, death down there to not be tied down and have a handhold. Um, but it's also, you know, they're they're part of the crew, they're part of the, you know, ship and need to be cared for. Yeah, I, I guess I wanted to ask about that. It might help us understand McWhir a little bit better, but the two sorts of things that you cite, Brian, that sound like instances of compassion on his part, um, a certain reading or a certain understanding of what leadership is would say that those are dangerous luxuries in a situation like this. When an overwhelming necessity presents itself, when survival is at stake, 
you ought not to be concerned about uh, the safety of your passengers, for example, who are just supernumerary with regard to the survival of the ship. They're not really helping. They're not really hurting necessarily either. You could close that door and forget that they're there until the danger is past. And maybe you shouldn't um, prioritize your subordinates and their survival based on whether you like them or whether they're young or whether they're promising as future leaders who might learn something from the experience because necessity is so overriding that only survival and doing whatever it takes is uh, at stake. So I take this story to be a response to that view. And I'd like to know exactly what the response is. Is the response something like, if you're so um, able that you are to other people as a god is to human beings, you actually do have the resources both to attend to the necessities and do what is right. Or is there some other way of understanding uh, McWhorter's power such that it's not um, a mistake on his part to try to do what he tries to do and succeeds apparently in doing, at least temporarily? I think it's likely the, the first, Jeff, and I, there's a detail, another detail, which again, Conrad delivers very indirectly that, that supports that first interpretation. Namely, we only find out at the end of the story that McWhorter has um, concluded at a certain point that, that really they might all die and writes a letter to his wife. Mm -hmm. But we're never told within the plot when he writes that. But since he's on deck most of the time, I figure it's got to be when they make it through the first storm and he goes back to his cabin and then he sees that the, the, and everything looks still and, and he sees the barometers now fallen even lower. And he thinks, oh my God, this is unbelievable. I would like to think it's broken. It's so low, right. but it's not broken. So he trusts the facts and he knows that they're now heading into an even worse storm than they mm -hmm. just encountered. So since that's the only lull in the time we see him below, he must have at that point written that letter to his wife, which is to say, um, look how uh, level-headed he remains and how attentive to all the various needs of uh, he, uh, how attentive he is to all the various needs of the people who are relying on him, including his family, right? So not only attending to the passengers and to Jukes, but to his wife to write this letter at that in such a time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you have to wonder why, what what motivates him to do that, right? If he really thinks that they're going down, that letter's not going anywhere, right? Right. And so then is it uh, a yearning for human connection with his wife that he knows he doesn't have to some extent? Uh, or might think that he has and he doesn't? Or is it just for the steward's entertainment? Or the steward, you know, the steward and by extension the crew's confidence in their captain that he thought they were going to die, but he pulled them out. Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting to, re to just kind of like return on that, the Chinese laborers idea of the humanitarian versus utilitarian. There is some point where Jukes, <clears throat> I believe, says that um, there were a few... Uh, laborers that had tried to open up one of the hatches that tried to escape the hold. Oh, that's right. Which, yeah, which yeah. would have potentially sunk the ship because if you let yeah, that, the hatch was swamped. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. And so yeah. by stopping, by providing a refuge in the hold rather than, you know, the torment that was, you know, living through these gods fighting, if I can over simplify again, um, then it was potentially both, for their safety, but also the safety of the ship. Mm -hmm. 
So look, it seems to me the story then poses this uh, problem for leadership, if I can put it this way. Um, people with extensive capacities might look like people with limited capacities. And people with um, apparently, uh, apparently imaginative people, if I can put it that way, might um, be less well-suited to handling um, the limit cases or the genuine tests than people whose um, imaginativeness does not um, show itself so readily. Um, seems right. Yeah, and, and I don't know whether there's a rule of thumb that we can derive from this other than think very carefully about uh, the people that you think look like good leaders, keeping this example in mind. Yeah, if I think of McWhir, I think we've said this, but it's worth punctuating. Maybe we didn't say it in quite this way. He has uh, what Aristotle cites as the two requirements for a potential philosopher, namely um, the steadfastness and self-control, right? that he, he holds it together in the face of this wild storm, which is akin to wild passions. I think that's fair. Um, and then we also see small details about, as Jeff pointed out, uh, he's attentive to the locks, right? He has the best umbrella, he has a watch, um, these sorts of things. That that combination of attention to the facts that matter and self-control where you can really just persevere in the face of, of such a storm when the rest of your crew members who I think are more uh, explicitly imaginative anyway become inflamed as though they are um, taken over by the storm. Right? Um. Yeah, there's that, that's a whole other thread that, that ties into a ton of kind of things that you see, you know, in the Marine Corps as far as folks that look like leaders and folks that are leaders. And it's certainly drawn out right in the introduction of McWhir, right? That, that he looks like someone that's blank and dull, but Conrad tells us that that's not the case, right? That his, his internal character does not match his, his outward character. And so it's, you know, that that's kind of a, we could do a whole nother hour on, <laughs> on the kind of concept of, um, you know, how we react visually to, you know, people within our species, um, especially from a kind of leadership perspective and, and who's the kind of dominant in certain um, capacities versus how they actually act under pressure, how they act when the storm is raging and um, when they have to make life and death decisions. Um, there's a lot to tease out in this one. Um, I think we're about at the end of time. Is there any, any follow-up questions that you would encourage readers uh, to, to think about and when they, when they potentially tackle this one? Well, I know what I've got on my mind, which is now I want to know the difference between a sailor and an engineer. <laughs> and I guess I would say, Brian, I'd pick up on a detail you touched on, which is why does he write this letter to his wife who really doesn't care? Um, and maybe more generally, you know, the, book, the book ends with the remark made by somebody else that this captain looks like such an idiot, but look, look it's amazing that such an idiot persevered through this storm, uh, which focuses attention on the loneliness of the type of person we've been describing. That is, they don't get credit for being what they are. Um, yeah, I, I, my, my question would be, what's up with the matches? 
because we didn't talk about that. <laughs> and they had like a, a really long paragraph about matches. I was just like, what? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, thank you guys. We'll be doing uh, Chekhov's The Student next, uh, which is really short. So um, any of our listeners that want to read along ahead of time, it should be a fairly easy one to tackle as far as length. But uh, as far as depth, we're pretty confident we can get a solid 45 minutes out of it. Um, so thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Lise. And yeah, thank you, Brian. Thanks, Brian. All right. And we'll see you guys next time. <laughs>